This is the Consciousness Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Preston. Each episode, I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. In this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Dr. Ricardo Manzotti. We discussed his explanation of consciousness, which he terms the spread mind. It's also the title of his book. With a background in electrical engineering, robotics, and computer science, Dr. Manzotti was a Fulbright visiting scholar at the Department of Linguistics and Philosophy at MIT. He's currently an associate professor in theoretical philosophy at IULM University, Milan. He's also a Google Scholar. We had a great conversation and covered the spread mind, mind object identity, as well as virtual reality and physicalism. Please enjoy this episode with Dr. Ricardo Manzotti. So Dr. Manzotti, thank you so much for uh, being here on the Consciousness Podcast. I'm uh, excited to, to speak to you and talk to you about your uh, spread mind theory. So why don't we start there and, and give us an overview of the spread mind theory. Okay. First of all, hi, Stuart, and thank you very much for this opportunity and for being here. It's really great. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, yes. So uh, I've been working on a new hypothesis about the theory, uh, about consciousness. And uh, I like to call it a hypothesis rather than a theory, because in the end, it's really okay. uh, what it boils down to. So a lot of people have been looking for consciousness in the brain, and they've not been able to find it. And the reason might be that they've been looking in the wrong place. So as an engineer, a computer scientist, an AI uh, scholar, and also a philosopher, I was obsessed. Why don't we find anything like consciousness inside, say, a computer or inside the brain? If it's there, there should be something that looks like consciousness. But as you very well know, no one so far has been able to find anything remotely like conscious experience inside brains. So, how is that? And uh, I took into consideration a radical idea, but a radical hypothesis, which is completely compatible with science. And this is something I want to stress. My hypothesis is an empirical hypothesis that is 100% compatible with physics and science. And the idea is that we haven't found consciousness inside brains because consciousness is not made of neurons, it's made of objects. Which objects? The objects, the physical objects that we find in our conscious experience. So just let me make it just one example and then I will let you ask anything you want to, to ask me. Perfect. When Perfect. I see an object, when I see, let's say, an apple, that's my favorite example. When I see an apple, my experience is made of something which is red, round, and applish. If we look inside the brain, we don't find anything like that. Neurons are neither red nor um, round nor applish. Is there anything physical which is just like our experience of the apple at that moment? And my hands has been that there is, and it is the apple itself. So my hypothesis is that our consciousness of the world, made of objects, sky, clouds, anything you you find in your own experience is one and the same with the world itself. Interesting. And so what, and what do you, when you say spread mind, what does the word spread mean? Well, the word spread came uh, uh, after many, many conversations I had with a friend of mine called Tim Parks, who is a novelist. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, by the way, who has just published a book uh, titled Out of the Head about this stuff. Hmm. And um, uh, he suggested that uh, my view uh, place consciousness in the external world. So consciousness is not inside the mind, is not an inner domain, but it is rather spread to encompass the world that we experience every day. So he suggested the name, the spread mind. Honestly, today okay. I, I like uh, another expression, which is the mind object identity, which mirrors uh, some theories about the mind, very popular in the 50s and in the 60s, that suggested an identity between the mind and the brain. I suggest a different kind of identity, which is that between mind and object. And that's the mind-object identity that you recently, you published a, a paper on that. Yeah. Okay. Correct. And uh, so I like... The... No, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I mean, I like uh, the name mind-object uh, uh, identity because uh, it uh, immediately rings a bell for neuroscientists because neuroscientists have uh, grounded all of their um, research on the idea that there has to be something inside the brain mm -hmm. which is identical to our experience and therefore they've been looking for the neural correlates of consciousness why because right. they were not able to find anything that was really identical with consciousness People like Koch, people like uh, Anil Seth, people like uh, David, David Eagleman, they went for the second best, which is not something which is identical to consciousness, but something which is uh, a good correlate for consciousness. But for a moment, right. think about that. Do scientists in other fields look for correlates? Do the people that have been looking for dark matter dark matter look for the correlate of dark matter or do they look for the real thing? <laughs> do the people right. that have been looking for the Higgs boson uh, happy with finding a correlate of the Higgs boson or they go for the real thing? So the fact that neuroscientists, after trying to find out the uh, neural activity which is identical to consciousness, have decided to backtrack to uh, looking for a correlate is suspicious. It tells us something and probably tells mm -hmm. us that they're looking in the wrong place. So when I use the word mind-object identity, this is a clear signal to neuroscientists that I am using their own method, only I am taking into consideration a different hypothesis. Yeah, that makes sense. And so you're looking at the the phenomenal experience as being a property of the of the object. Exactly. Okay. Now, when you uh, just kind of a tangential comment or thought when you when you mentioned that you know consciousness is is in the object, um, it, it sounds like this Buddhist concept of become one with something that you love or become one with with an object. Um, have you explored that at all? Has anybody approached you with that concept or done kind of a cross um, spiritual religion philosophy combination with what you're talking about to see if there's not something there? 
Yes, well, I, I must confess that uh, I don't know anything about Eastern philosophy and that I move from a completely physicalist and uh, I would say logical and rational uh, in the Western right. sense um, um, background. But having said yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Yeah, but having said that, many people pointed to me that there is a connection between my, there are analogies between my, my hypothesis and the teachings of Eastern thinker. And uh, mm -hmm. from the little I know, I think that I, if I could, of course that's not possible, but if I could, I would really like to spend time with Buddha and other Eastern thinker to talk about what they meant for consciousness. And it may turn mm -hmm. out that what they meant was very much uh, uh, alike what I mean, as many people have pointed to me. So although I don't know anything, I would very much like to have a, uh, of course, impossible conversation with them. Right. Yeah, that, that would be interesting. So if that happens, I'll, I'll keep an eye on that from you. Um, so, you know, I hear you saying that uh, you, you, you're not looking for a neural correlate of consciousness, the way you wouldn't look for a, a physical correlate of dark matter. But as we actually experience, have these phenomenal experiences as a property of an object, what, what is the connection in our, in our brain, um, in our minds, to the, the consciousness coming from this object with which we're, we're interacting? Right. Well, of course, the brain is uh, necessary in order to have conscious experience. We have plenty of data that show that there's a very intimate connection between the activity in the brain and our consciousness. If we damage the brain, mm. we change the way in which we experience the world. If we take drugs, right. have different experiences. If our brain goes in a different state, we dream or we have hallucinations. So it, all the um, empirical evidence from neurosciences points out to a causal relation between the brain and the uh, and consciousness. However, it has never been proved that the consciousness is inside the brain, nor that, and this is very important, that the brain is uh, uh, sufficient for uh, consciousness. Let me make you an example. We yeah. have no evidence at all that a congenitally total color blind subject can have an experience or a dream or, ha or a hallucination of color. Likewise, we have no evidence at all that the congenitally uh, total blind subject have anything like uh, an experience of a visual image. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of evidence that it shows that they may have images tactile images, they may have geometrical images, they may have the concept of uh, a shape, but this is not the same as having a visual experience. So as far as we know, the idea that the brain is able to create its own reality is a myth. The, 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 the very popular image of the brain in a vat that because it has been connected with a computer from its birth, like in the Matrix movie, just to make an example, mm -hmm. 
and, right. and that therefore is able to create a mental world undistinguishable from the real world is a myth, is a contemporary myth, is a legend. And by a mm. legend, I mean something that we have no evidence that it might be true. And let me make you another example that it is always misleading. The notion of virtual reality that many people take uh, as uh, a proof that the brain may create its own reality. Let me ask you a question, Stuart. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, have you ever used a virtual reality device? I have. Okay, great. And so probably you saw virtual images. Yes, yeah, Do saw images have... and, and traveled and went places. Great, and, and so you saw colors inside those images. I did. Okay, so my question is, were the colors that you saw virtual or were they real physical colors produced by a little tiny screen inside your uh, virtual reality device? Yeah, they were real colors. Exactly. The fact is that all virtual reality devices don't work by inducing our brain into creating a mental reality. They work because mm. they produce little tiny physical, but physical, this is what I want to stress, physical properties next to our uh, sensor organs. So they produce little tiny images just in front of your eye. They produce little sounds, tiny sounds just next to your ears. They move your body a little bit, maybe, and, and so forth. So we have no evidence that we can produce a mental world. All the examples that we have since the time in which Penfield started in the 50s to uh, uh, trigger electric activity in the brain up to the most advanced virtual reality devices show that the physical world is necessary and that the brain always works because it is coupled with the external physical reality which recombine but does not create. And that's the crucial point, I think. Okay. And then, then the, but the, so I can see the colors in the virtual reality, but the phenomenal experience of it, the qualia that come along with that experience is coming out of the physical device of the virtual reality machine. And that, that phenomenal experience in me can create um, physical reactions. So what, what is the connection? For how, how does the consciousness come okay. from the physical object and end up in my physical body? Okay, that, that's a very good point. So you say that you, you, you get some uh, interaction with the physical uh, external property and that you have to explain where your phenomenal experience, the qualia, is triggered by uh, or how is it created by, by the physical external property? But let me ask you another question. Have you ever seen, let's say, a physical red next to a phenomenal red? To be able to say, okay, one <laughs> is physical and the other one is phenomenal. I don't think so. The no, but I mean, I guess the phenomenal experience is I, is I feel red. Right. I mean, if I see red on the abdomen of a uh, um, black widow, 
Yes. I feel, you know, I feel a phenomenal feeling, you know, it's a conscious feeling of that, that I can't, you know, it's not a physical thing, but somehow, so that black widow is the object and I have a phenomenal experience. The, the conscious is, is, is of the object. It's of the spider. Yes. So how, how is that? How is that connected to me? How does the, how does the consciousness actually end up being connected into my, my experience? How do I experience that consciousness? Yes. I will get to that. It's not in a neural. Moment. Exactly. I will get to that in a moment, but uh, since you picked okay. up this example, let me tell you that I've just been, not just a year ago, I've been bitten by a black widow with that uh, oh, black and red on a finger. Well, it wasn't that bad because it was a dry bite. It was not a wet bite. So not a lot of poison. And you guess where? At the airport, at the Boston, Logan, at the Logan International <laughs> Airport in Boston. So oh. that was not a particularly exotic place to be beaten by. No. So anyway, I have that red very, very clear in my experience. So mm. good. So, uh, you see, what, what does it mean when we say that I feel red? So, I take this sentence to, to, as the working example. I feel red. And I would say that in this sentence, we don't know what is the I. We don't know what is the feeling, which is a relation between something we don't know what it is, the I, and mm -hmm. the red. And, and the only thing that maybe we know what it is, is the red. And where is the only place where we know the red is? It's the back of the black widow. The black, the, not the black, the back of the black widow is the only place where we are sure there is something red. So my hunch is that when we say something like, I feel the red on the back of the black widow, what we really mean is something like the red on the back of the spider is part of myself. I am composed by the property which is physically on the back of the black widow. So the idea mm. is that there's no such a thing as a homunculus inside my body waiting for the colors to be reproduced inside my body. But rather, my body is at the center of a world and the properties of this world at any time may be part of the collection of events, which is myself. At any moment, at this very moment, Stuart, what do you have in your experience but my voice? I mean, in your, I don't know, are you in a studio, in a room, in a, on a terrace? Where are yeah, you? Yeah, I'm, I'm in a room. Yeah, okay. I'm in a room. So what, what do you see? Some shelves, a wall, mm -hmm. uh, window, window, window so, computer, table. Exactly. So you see, if I ask, what do you find inside your experience? You're not talking, you're not telling me about mental stuff. You are telling me about the world which surrounds your body. I ask yeah. you, what, what do you find in your experience? And you told me, a window, a table, shelves, a wall, walls. You didn't tell me 
an image of a window, an image of a wall, an image of a phenomenal experience, a qualia of a table. You told me, a table. And if I may say, I believe that we have been all uh, bamboozled by this talking about uh, qualia and about phenomenal experience. Mm. Because we assumed we were where our body is. And because we couldn't find anything like uh, our world inside our body, we invented the idea that inside our body there had to be a miniature replica of the external world. And we call that replica, that copy, qualia. And we said that it has to be phenomenal because we cannot see it. I cannot open your body and find your experience. But like in the um, fable about the emperor's new clothes, we didn't conclude that because we couldn't find anything like our experience inside our body, our experience had to be elsewhere. We draw the conclusion that our experience had to be inside our body, but had to mm. be invisible, phenomenal, something which is uh, special, unique. It's there, but nobody can see it. Isn't that strange to assume that uh, there is something inside our body that nobody can see, can observe, can physically measure? Yeah, I mean, that is, uh, that is essentially the hard problem, isn't it? Is we have, we have these phenomenal experiences, but like you said, we, we can't find it in, in the body or in the mind, in the brain, I mean. I know. That's why I ask people to turn uh, upside down their world. Rather yeah. than think they are inside their body, and they perceive the world, I ask them to consider what if it was the other way around? What is, we are the world, and we are the world that acts through our body. So the body is the proxy for the world that we are. It's not the proxy of a brain. It's the proxy of the external world. What is the role of the, what is the, role of the brain then? The role of the brain is to bring together a world. Yeah. The role of, exactly, yeah. If you think about that, I mean, you, because of your brain and your body, a whole world of things in your life adds up and they produce effects through your body. A weeks, a weeks later, a minutes later, in different places. Mm -hmm. so you, our body is a kind of funnel. It's a funnel through which the external world is able to act and to produce events. Mm. And so these, these objects that, that contain the, the consciousness, as, as you put it, and almost, you almost have to strip away all the typical verbiage and definitions you know, in, with, your, with your hypothesis. But when we look, when we look at that, I'm, I'm looking at an apple and I have the phenomenal experience of the apple as a property of the apple. What, what if you're looking at the same apple? You know, we obviously, I think I, I read somewhere or maybe in one of your videos, you mentioned how we both are experiencing that apple in different ways, right? I mean, maybe, maybe my side of the apple isn't quite ripe. So it's a little yellow. Your side is red. 
and we're looking at it differently. Yes. But that that apple is it's the the consciousness from the apple is connected into both of our our beings. Yes, this is an excellent question, which is uh, at the basis of uh, at the roots of of um, the debates about consciousness ever since Plato. I mean, if one is uh, a realist and uh, like me, it is, I even claim that we are one and the same with the external objects. How is that? We all see the world in a different way. I may be colorblind and you may be not colorblind. So, or I mm-hmm. may, you know, when we, when we enter in, in a room, it may be, ghastly hot for you and it may be chilly for someone else so how is that that the if the world is what we are made of we all experience a different world now uh, interestingly enough we the 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 answer is already in uh, newtonian physics it, it is even in Galilean physics, so it is in the very fabric of reality, but for some reason nobody has ever paid too much attention to it. And I refer to a very simple fact that we all learn at school. And uh, we may call it uh, the relative nature of physical properties. But, but this uh, sounds like a big mouthful. Let me, let me make you a much simpler experiment. Velocity. Much simpler okay. example. Velocity. If you take mm-hmm. a, an object, let's take the, the apple. So we started talking about the apple. Let's continue to talk about the apple. If I put an apple on your table right now, and I ask you, is this apple still or moving? You would reply to me, well, Ricardo, it is still relative to the table. But, mm-hmm. for example, it is moving relative to the moon. And it is moving right. at another velocity relative to a car that is passing in front of uh, the building in which you are. Mm-hmm. So, the point is, velocity does not exist by itself. Velocity is a physical property, but it is a relative physical property. So the same object may have multiple velocities and they're all physical. And this is not an issue for physics. It's not that physics collapsed after uh, Galileo's discovery of the relativity of velocity. It is just a fact that we learn at school that all velocities are relative. If we accept that... Yeah, it's your physical frame of reference. Exactly. They're relative to a reference frame. Perfect. We can apply the same uh, argument to all other properties. For example, colors. I may say that a um, patch or, or, or a white patch is white only relative to a standard trichromat. Namely, someone with the same number of uh, and kind, and kind of photoreceptor that uh, an average human being has. But if one had a different uh, uh, eye, one would see a different uh, color. Not because one would see a mental color, but because, as in the case of velocity, 
colors a relative, the relative to a reference frame. In the case of velocity, it is all very simple because it's all explained by geometry. In the case of colors, we need to consider more complex uh, causal chains. We need to take into consideration the geometry of the eye, of the retina, the number of receptor, the, the, the absorption curves of, of the receptors, and so forth. So color is not an easy, an easy property. But in, right. the end, in the end, we cannot define a color without specifying relative to which uh, physical system that color is going to be. And mm. we can say the same about everything. Take a sunset, for example. You are, at, uh, you are at, uh, on the beach, you, you watch the sea. I live in Italy in a place where the sun sets in, uh, in the sea. It's very nice. So every night we have these uh, beautiful sunsets. And every mm. night, every evening, we can see the line of the sun on the sea. My point is that that sunset is relative to a particular uh, human body. If we moved on the beach, we would see that the sunset, that the sunset would move together with us. As it right, can happen right. if you're driving. If you're driving when, when the sun sets down, you will see that the sun seems to follow you. But it's not because the sun follows you, but because the sunset is a relative physical object. So to cut a long story short, the idea is that we can explain the subjectivity of experience in terms of physical relativity. There's no need to have a subjective um, reality. It is enough right. to understand that the physical world is relative. And because we all have different bodies, it's like velocity. If you're all walking at a different, in a different direction and at a different speed, every object would have a different velocity relative to us. I just ask you to consider that the world is much richer than it seems. That's why I call mm -hmm. it the physical world with an expression that I like very much, a rainbow world. To mean mm. that all objects have multiple properties, like a rainbow which has multiple colors, I suggest that every object surrounding us has many more colors than the one that we see. We see only the color that takes place relative to our particular physical body. But such a color is not in our head. It's outside, like relative velocity. Yeah. What about, and I'm not sure if this is what you meant, but you, you used an expression, privacy of experience, and, and I think I misunderstood that. But what it made me think of is, what about experiences that are purely inside of my head? So like a, a dream or a hallucination, uh, you know, a thought. What about um, phenomenal experiences that don't necessarily have an external object? Right. Well, um this is a, a crucial question, and it is probably the crux of the matter. It is the question that uh, induced many philosophers, starting from Plato, 
and going through the card to um, introduce the notion of a mental uh, world, the idea of uh, an immaterial soul, because how could you explain the fact that I can see something that is not there? Well, my answer to that is twofold. First of all, it's not completely true that we can really experience everything. Our imagination is heavily constrained. Uh, for example, you cannot imagine by sheer imagination, you cannot see by sheer imagination a color you've never met. If you try mm. hard to see a color which is neither red nor green nor blue nor violet, you're not going to succeed. <laughs> so, first of and, and that I think is quite interesting. If all these qualities were created by our mind, why should not be able to create additional ones? After all, it shouldn't be any it shouldn't be more difficult than create the one that we see every day. Think about everything that might go wrong in a brain in terms of diseases, trauma, um, chemical substances. If we had the machine, so to speak, that creates qualia, why does it never make a mistake and create a color that we've never seen? Isn't that surprising? So yeah. So even even if I dream of a if I if I have a nightmare of a monster that I've never seen before, the the monster is really constructed of things that were already in my brain. Exactly, and this is surprising if our brain created the, the qualia, because sooner or later I would expect my brain, no matter how good it is, to make a mistake. You know, maybe because of disease, maybe because I have a high fever. I don't know, but I mean, take uh, genes. Sometimes people are born with additional fingers. They, they, they have additional uh, physical features. Sometimes genes make mistakes. The brain is a lot mm. more complex than genes. We have 100,000 genes, but we have trillions of connections in the brain. If the brain right. created qualia, why the brain never makes a mistake. Why colors are always right? Why the stuff our mental world is made of is always the stuff the physical world in which we live is made of. That should raise some, some, uh, some uh, um, questions, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, exactly. so then we, our brains end up with these impressions is that, is that what it is? So I, I experience the apple. The apple has the consciousness, and I, and I experience that, that, and it leaves an impression on my brain. It, right. that, I guess, a, a memory? Exactly. Well, I'm trying to get rid of the is notion. Is that simple? Well, yes. I think that that is a too simplistic notion of memory. And I suggest a different notion of memory, and I will take advantage of... Uh, uh, another author that might surprise you who claims something very close to what I'm going to uh, suggest as an explanation of mm. memory. Uh, 
And this author is uh, Claude Shannon, the founder of the theory of information and basically the founder of uh, AI. He's not as famous mm. as uh, uh, Alan Turing, but actually Claude Shannon, who was Nobel Prize, was uh, the guy that really uh, created the basis for computer science and AI. So he's, he's really a, a okay. key figure. And uh, once, I mean, he was working with memories and with uh, artificial memories for the first time. And uh, all of a sudden, Shannon had a, a, a um, revelation in one of his books and working with memories. He said, memory is uh, just uh, slow communication. So, hmm. imagine that I am sending a signal through a wire. And imagine that I can slow down the signal at an arbitrary slow speed along the way. And imagine that I can decide when the signal gets back to the original speed. So I send you, uh, let's say, um, some uh, signal, I send you some information, and along the way, the speed of this information slows down enormously. And it's still yeah, it's there. Like bu it's buffered. Exactly. Well, but the buffer is the notion that it store, you store the information into some kind of container. Uh, the point that uh, Shannon wanted to make is that we don't need the notion of the buffer. It is enough mm. to be able to slow down information. So information is never really uh, still. It keeps moving mm. only at an incredibly slow speed. Well, Shannon said, if we can do that, we can explain memory as a form of very slow communication. So you have a pen drive. I send you information. The information gets inside your pen drive. It, it takes, say, a year in order to be transferred to your computer. And you may say that it had, you had a memory on your pen drive, but Shannon would have said that we, that was just a case of very, very slow communication. So why do I say that? Yeah. And what does it has to what what does it have to do with uh, with uh, hallucination and memory. Because if we accept that notion, we may explain memory and hallucination as cases of very slow perception. So as in communication, we have a source and then we have a receiver. In perception, mm -hmm. we have an external object and then we have an experience. Usually, we think that there has to be something in between. And we call it a record or an engram. But no one mm -hmm. has ever been able to find in a brain anything like a record. If you read right. all of the literature in neuroscience about memory, we find a lot about neural signals, but nothing like a neural record. No one has ever been able to find out the record of, say, uh, one's grandmother. Only hmm. neural structures which are related with a uh, uh, continuous flow of information from the inside to the outside and keep going. Uh, actually, it's interesting that we cannot switch off a brain. 
brain, you know, are not the kind of thing that you can stop. The neural signals in the brain continue to move. So we could take advantage of uh, Claude Shannon's insight about the nature of memory, and we could say that memory in a brain is just slow perception. We still perceive something, only it took to us years to perceive it, rather than what mm. happened in everyday life when the distance between what we perceive and the activity in the brain is uh, 100 milliseconds. Right. I know, I know, it sounds very, very different from what we are used to think about. It is. But it, is. it provides... It is very different. I know, but at least it provides a new answer to a question that has never had a um, convincing solution. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. The, uh, I wanted to go back a little bit, the, the frame of reference. So you mentioned the velocity of the apple and the frame of reference. Please. When, if we take this, the, the apple has, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing the, the, the mind object of the apple. Can I flip it around? And I guess the two parts of the question, one is, does my physical, um, the, the physical property of consciousness within my physical body, does the apple experience that? And oh. the other part of that is if you and I are sitting together or even, even here on the phone, are our mind objects interacting together? Yes, well, uh, um, th that's a very good question because a lot of people uh, take that point wrong. They say, if I see the apple, therefore, uh, if I am the apple, when I see the apple, then the apple is me, so it is watching at me. No, I never said that apples have an experience of people watching at them. And that's why I have a brain and the apple doesn't have a brain. So mm. to allow the apple to take place relative to a reference frame, we need the proper reference frame. In this case, the body with the, the brain is the right reference frame for the apple to be what it is. Mm -hmm. The apple doesn't have, there's no symmetry here. The apple doesn't have any, any uh, proper structure like my brain. So the apple is not, in, is not in any condition to be responsible for the experience of uh, my body, my face, whatever I am when I'm looking at the apple. Let me put it this way. My, um, I claim that the, bo the body and the brain are the necessary condition for the apple to exist. So they allow the apple to be what it is. But, and, and the apple is also one and the same with my consciousness. So I am identical with the apple and I exist because of my brain. But the brain is not the thing that I am. The brain or the neural activity in the brain is only the necessary condition for the thing that I am to take place. An analogy mm. is the following. Take a lake in the mountains and an artificial dam. So if you build a dam, say in Switzerland, there's a lot of rain, 
there's a lot of water, the terrain is steep, so it's very likely that you get a lake. It's very easy to make a lake in, in, in Switzerland. But right. uh, if, you build a, if you build a dam in the Saudi Arabia desert, there's no water, there's no rain, there are no mountains. Doesn't matter whether, whether you build a one mile high dam, you're not gonna get any lake. Right. So the dam is responsible for the existence of the lake, but it's not the lake. Likewise, I say that the brain is responsible for the existence of my experience, but such an experience is not in my brain. It is mm -hmm. somewhere else. Where? It is one and the same with the apple. When my experience is made of the apple. Now, I don't want to be misleading. I use the example of the apple just because it is easy and simple. But of course, at any moment, my, my experience, your experience, is not made just by one object. But as you right. said before, it's made by your room, uh, the, the people that are walking back and forth in your place is made by what happened to you a week before, a few days ago. But if you put them, if you put together all that stuff, that collection of objects, which is of course, course more complex than an apple, that collection of objects is what you find in your mind. At this very moment, it's just the lake that your body is preventing from uh, flowing down, from scattering mm. everywhere. So in a way, the brain is a, a physical device that allows a whole world of objects, bodies, animals, events, to take place together. It joins together as a reference frame a whole world. It provides unity to a whole world, which remains yeah. there. We, we have to resist to the temptation of imagining, of thinking that this world is, is, is brought inside the brain. Nothing gets inside the brain. The brain is physically insulated from the external world. The world remains outside. But the, the mm. brain allows that world to produce effects. And that's and that's why you would call yourself a physicalist, which I find I find uh, interesting because it's it's like a mind and object, you know. It almost seems there's still a separation between mind and brain here in the old sense, but the way you're talking, it you know the mind body identity, it does seem like it makes sense that you would call yourself a physicalist, you know, and yeah. I know that. You know, your, your claim that consciousness is not inside the brain, like you just said. There's a physical separation there, and therefore not in our bodies. Um, how, how are both of those true? Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, uh, actually, um, see, ever since uh, um, 18th century, people uh, contrasted uh, the body with the soul. And they mm -hmm. thought that uh, if you don't believe in the soul, therefore, the only option was to believe that we are only our bodies. 
that we are one and the same with our body. The, the common view, the popular view, is that a physicalist, a materialist, is someone who believes that we are identical with our bodies. We can be anything right. else. But actually, this is completely false. It is false from a scientific perspective because to be a physicalist is only to believe that everything is physical. Not that if we are physical, therefore we have to be our bodies. It, a physicalist has to believe only or to assume only that if we are physical, we have to be identical with something physical, no matter where this something is located. So when I claim that we are the external object, the external world, I make a claim that is perfectly compatible with uh, physicalism. Because the thing that I suggest we are identical with is made of physical objects. Tables, chairs, apples, people, mm -hmm. and so forth. And as I said, it is also false from a, a common sense point of view. In fact, we don't say, I am a body. I say, I have a body. Mm -hmm. We don't say, unless we saw many science fiction movies of the last 20, 30 years, we don't say, I am a brain. That's a very recent uh, uh, figure of speech. The, actually, for all the um, human history, people have said we have a brain, we have a heart, we have a body, but we are not them. And right. as I said, I mean, because there seemed to be no, because scientists believed there was no alternative, they stress very much that if you are a physicalist, you have to believe to be, to be one and the same with our body. But they offer an alternative. And, and, and that's something that I want to stress to neuroscientists and to uh, scientists, that in my hypothesis, there is nothing outside of the physical world. So we can be physicalists and at the same time understand that we are not our bodies, but we are something more than that. Yeah, that does make sense. Thank you. It does make sense. Thank you very much. The, uh, now another, another thing you, you put out there for me to look at is um, Tononi in his integrated information theory, which, which comes up quite a bit when I talk to different people. There, and there are other computational approaches out there. When, when you look at these, these, uh, these ideas and these concepts about consciousness, uh, why, why is your hypothesis different? And what, and what is the connection of your hypothesis with information? Right. Well, Tononi put forward a very interesting hypothesis, namely that our brain produces something uh, that nobody has ever been able to uh, measure or to see directly, as we see, say, um, electric activity or other physical properties, something that he has called uh, integrated information. And he puts... Uh, forward the hypothesis that this integrated information, which is a very interesting mathematical uh, concept, might in turn produce our 
conscious experience, our phenomenal experience. Now, I, I, I like to contrast my view with the Tononi's hypothesis because our views couldn't be more different. They're really at the two opposite ends of a spectrum. Uh, Tononi claims that uh, brains are unique in the natural universe, that they produce mm. something which is uh, impossible to be uh, measured and observed, like we observe tables, chairs, and uh, electricity. Yeah. And uh, then he's left with uh, additional mysteries. Even if in our brains there was something like uh, integrated information, which is still to be proved, uh, we would have again the same problem. How is that that information becomes our colored, smelly, and uh, uh, rich um, conscious world. Because if you think about information, it doesn't look like our experience. It looks very much different, a set of uh, bits, mathematical notions, very different from the red of the apple, and so forth. But right. uh, Tononi's proposal is flattering to a traditional, albeit uh, old view, which is the idea that uh, the uh, that uh, human beings are special, that we are at the center mm. of the universe, that we are different from the other animals, and that in our brain happens something which is different from the physical world. This is what Sigmund, Sigmund Freud called the narcissism of man, namely our mm. tendency to believe that we have to be special, that we can't be just like the external world. We want to be at the center of everything. We want to be made of a stuff which is not the same stuff tables and chairs are made of. Yeah. So in order to justify that, that Tononi's theory is coherent with this view, which failed completely in other areas. I mean, Darwin showed that we are not special. We are just like the other animals. I mean, we are all made by DNA. DNA. Uh, Copernicus showed that we are just, uh, this, uh, just uh, we are not in a special place in the universe. We are not at the center of the universe, and so forth. So, uh, against this view, I put forward a, an opposite view, which claims that we are just like the world. We are not made of a special information concocted inside the brain. We are just made of the external world. We are one and the same with the world. So although it is a little bit less flattering because the uh, consequence of my hypothesis is that we are made of the same stuff everything else is made of. At the same time... Yeah, we, are, we are stardust. We are stardust, exactly. That's not a bad, that's not a bad uh, uh, thing after all. It is also... Right. Uh, in a way more uh, relaxing because uh, we are not prisoner of our mind. We cannot be cheated by a matrix um, demon making us believe to be in the universally, in, the ma in a massive simulation. If my theory right. is right, the massive simulation hypothesis by Nick Bostrom and other people is just wrong. 
we see the world as it is. The world we see is not an illusion created by our brain. It is right. just the world. And this is, for me, it is uh, um, reassuring. I like the idea that there's no uh, separation between myself and the world. Yeah. Yeah, it, do, it does make sense and it does feel right. What, what about uh, your hypothesis connection with information? Well, I will use again uh, Claude Shannon's word. And Claude Shannon being the guy who invented the theory of information, mm -hmm. I think he knew what he was talking about. Claude Shannon said that information doesn't have anything to do with the semantic aspect of experience. This is to say that uh, information is not uh, a stuff in the world. It is a way we have to describe with what computers or people do when they interact in a certain way. Let, let, me, let me give you an analogy. Yep. Uh, a year ago, a friend of mine was convinced that inside the food, there are calories as there are uh, proteins and carbohydrates. And they tried to mm -hmm. explain to him that while proteins and carbohydrates are stuff which, which can be uh, extracted and separated in the food, calories are not a stuff. You cannot find one calorie <laughs> through chemical processes. Calories are what yeah. the stuff inside the food does, but it's not a stuff. It's a different notion. Right. Well, information, yeah. to cut a long story short, is like um, calories. Is what the stuff a computer is made of can do. So you can store right. one billion questions inside a memory. But those questions are not inside that memory. They're okay. just like colors. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I just have a few more uh, wrap-up questions here. But before I get into those, was there anything specific to your hypothesis that uh, I haven't asked or that you wanted to get out there? No, I think we've been pretty, pretty comprehensive. And uh, I okay. thank you very much because uh, you... you, you ask me the, the most important thing and I would not have been able to be clearer uh, than I've been without your question. So thank you very much. Well, great, great. And thank you for your help with those. The, uh, okay, so just a few wrap-up things. Um, kind of big picture, you know, what do you see as being uh, potential big ramifications of, of your uh, hypothesis? Well, first of all, I think it might help neuroscience to devise experiment completely different from the one that they're doing right now to yeah. understand what is consciousness and possibly to address diseases and conditions which are related with, with, with um, our conscious experience. Uh, I mean, uh, moving from wrong assumption about something so important as consciousness has dire consequences for, for uh, uh, research and also for the application of research. Continue to think that uh, we have to find out uh, a, 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 a genie in, among neurons 
is wasting money and time that we could mm. uh, apply to do uh, completely different research. It, it's a little bit like when in the 19th century, physicists got stuck with the notion of ether, and they've been uh, trying to uh, find ether for 60 years. They devised right. the most, uh, the smartest and the most... Uh, uh, um, ingenious experiment to find ether only to find out that there was nothing to to to, to find and so the right. first uh, first impact would be in science the second mm -hmm. impact might be i think in uh, everyday life because it will help us to get rid of the notion of being a a ghost in the shell of being a, a, a something prisoner in the body and it also, right. I think, will make a big impact on society because people might stop giving all that importance to their own body. Because right now, we think that we are our bodies. Uh, contrary to what our language says, that we have bodies, but we are not our bodies. But uh, once we will understand that we are the world that our body brings into existence, then we will uh, care more for others and for uh, the environment in general, and not because of altruism, but because we will understand that the, that the surrounding world is what we are made of. And so, in a way, this theory will provide a kind of uh, a selfish argument for uh, uh, altruism. So, yeah. if, if we are the others, then it makes sense to be good with the others and not only because we are, uh, you know, altruists, but because it's what we're made of. So I think it will have a, a, a big impact on, on, on both science and uh, everyday life. Yeah, I think that's a great use, a great use of this hypothesis. It's almost, it, it, you grow up and they teach you, you are what you eat. It's almost yeah. taking that and say, you are where you are. You know, you exactly. are the, the environment. And so it's a, if you make that better, you make, you make yourself better and you make each other better. Exactly. Exactly. They, they, they yeah, all, that's, they, that's fantastic. The old idea that we cannot, I, I think this is one of the few things that I know uh, about Buddha. So, but this is a very scholastic uh, uh, memory that mm -hmm. you, you cannot save only yourself. That you can't save only yourself. And that's strange if you accept the traditional Western view of man, because we believe yeah. to be completely isolated from the universe. So if we accept the traditional view of man as a ghost in the shell, once the shell is intact, we don't care about, we don't have we don't care about the universe, about the world, about the others, because we are just a ghost in the uh, a very lonely, yeah. very lonely and sad and bleak ghost in the shell. <laughs> so, according to that view, uh, we could survive inside the memory of a computer, but that would be a very sad existence because we would be completely insulated, sealed from the world. Yeah. I suggest a completely different view, and I, I, I provide a logical explanation of Buddha's 
suggesting that you can't save yourself alone because yeah. you, you don't exist alone. Right. I, I'm saying something very strong that what we are is uh, the others, but not in a moral sense, I, in a physical sense. So I'm providing mm -hmm. a physicalist uh, uh, support for being one with the rest of reality. And because we are a social organism, social uh, individual, we, to be one with the others. Yeah, that's, that's a very powerful notion. And, and actually, I'm not sure if you intended to set out for that, but it's a, it's a very beautiful notion. It's something that I stumbled upon. It was a consequence, an, an unpredicted consequence of a very scientific and in a way called the process of uh, um, singling out various solutions to the problem of conscience. But I've been very yeah. happy to find out something so heartening for me at the, at the end of a process that was not looking for anything like that. Okay. All right, well, let's... Uh, Finish up with this, this one. Um, what else is in your future? What are you going to be working on? And, you know, along with that, kind of what do you see in the future of the study of, of human consciousness? Well, in, in the next future, I want, first of all, to address, and I've already started doing that. And in my book, you will find uh, uh, um, a lot of uh, evidence from neuroscience. But I want to continue to do that. I want to look for... Right empirical evidence of this uh, framework. And strangely enough, I'm looking for this empirical evidence in the work of neuroscientists. And I'm already, and I will work probably with some neuroscientists in order to make experiments that makes predictions about, that make prediction about uh, um, conscious experience. So I, I, I will be working a lot more on the empirical verification of my theory. Because as I said, it's a scientific hypothesis. It's not a, a philosophical uh, um, right. uh, speculation. It, it yeah. Is a scientific yeah, I hypothesis. like that aspect. And it's just that. It may, sounds, um, it, it may sound, let's say, so radical that people may say, well, it doesn't look like the average uh, hypothesis that neuroscientists put forward. And they do agree with that. But having yeah. said that, it is 100% a scientific empirical hypothesis with many consequences, hmm. but it's just like that. So I will work a lot about finding empirical verification of this hypothesis, and uh, I will probably try to devise an uh, experiment. We've been already working on, on, uh, on, uh, on one of them, and we, we, we could get some results uh, in which we will try to uh, make people extend their own experience to completely new physical phenomena. So, mm. new color, just to make an example, or something completely uh, alien. And not because yeah. we will give people drugs, but because we will put people in some kind of physical contraction that will allow their body to uh, be connected to, to, expand, to expand to new phenomena in the world. So, yeah. again, I will work on the empirical verification of this theory. 
Nice. I like that. I like that. Well, Dr. Manzotti, you really have uh, shared some incredible information and you've got me excited to go, go forward and start thinking of some of how it applies in my own, my own thoughts and my own philosophies here. So I, I can't thank you enough for taking your time, you know, taking an hour out of your day to, to share all this with, with me and our, and our listeners. So thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, yes. Can I say one last thing that Great. I forgot to... Oh, yeah, well, please. Yeah, yeah, please. Well, sorry, sorry. Uh, I should have said it before, but I remember it right now. Uh, since yeah, yeah. A, sorry for that. I apologize. Uh, since this is a very new idea, and uh, uh, which is related not only to scientific problems, but it also has an impact on everyday uh, people's life, in my uh, free time, I drew some cartoons and comics that present these uh, problems, these ideas in a, a different way. They're very short and they can be downloaded for free from my website. And just, I just suggest to people that are not uh, uh, scientists or philosophers to mm -hmm. have a look at them because they could see many of the problems that are related on consciousness presented in a different way. So they can just check on my website, www.consciousness.it, just to download some free cartoons, just to see whether my ideas may make sense for them. Yeah, awesome. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I'm glad, I'm glad you got that out there because I think that... Uh, Having some some uh, simple cartoons and whatnot to help us understand it is is uh, wonderful. So I will make sure and put a link to that on the uh, on the podcast blog, and I will also make sure to um, put a link to your book, and uh, so that people can go out there and get a copy of the book and then get more information from your website. So thank you very much for making sure we got that out there. Thank you so much. That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the Consciousness Podcast at our Twitter handle at ConchCast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.